I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 20 of season 1 on Miles and Train. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Give Us This Day, Daily Prayer for Today's Catholic, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Building a Movement of the Ecumenical Christian Left, Solidarity Hall, Eden Plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for Black Catholics, where Peter is, there is the Church, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Whippenstock Publishers. They published my 2015 book that this podcast takes as its title, Folk Phenomenology, with the subtitle, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Before that, they published my 2014 short book, A Primer for Philosophy and Education, and afterwards, my book of essays, Tell Them Something Beautiful, Essays and Ephemera. The most important thing, though, is that uh, Whip and Sock has really been with me from the very beginning uh, of my career as a scholar, as an academic, um, and they offered me an opportunity to find a place uh, for my voice that didn't have to compromise so much uh, with respect to its uh, different, and in some cases, um, disparate audiences. Uh, the Academy can at times seem like uh, something very different than the church and uh, religion and theological conversations. And of course, that's not true. Um, and they're a great testimony to that not being true. Um, but I think at a time where it, it felt probably more true than it does to me now, uh, they really were there for me and in many ways uh, mentored me into uh, my work as a writer and as an author and uh, as a philosopher. I'm so grateful to all of them, in particular to James Stock, who whenever I mentioned the, uh, uh, the, the beginning ideas of uh, seeking sponsors for this show, uh, immediately, you know, uh, tossed uh, his name in the hat and, uh, and really kicked off our support. I, I've never found uh, in Whip and Stock a reluctance to uh, support uh, my sometimes admittedly uh, wild ideas. I remember one year they sent out just a giant book, uh, uh, sorry, a giant box of books, like 150 books, for me to just, you know, pour out on a table at a conference and let people come and take um, free copies. And, you know, they're always uh, up for doing stuff like that, which, if you know anything about publishing these days, is, well, it basically doesn't exist. So, I'm. Um, 
I'm recording outdoors. You can probably hear uh, a couple dogs barking over here or maybe a plane going by. I'm in San Antonio uh, with my sister, my brother-in-law, and their family. And this podcast season is coming to an end today. So if you'd like to support Folk Phenomenology, you know, please share this episode. Subscribe to the show. There's going to be a season two, I promise, on your favorite app or platform. Uh, leave reviews and, and ratings, and, uh, and you can also drop a tip if you enjoyed the season or enjoyed uh, this episode. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media accounts, on Twitter. Uh, there goes a helicopter now, I think, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. Well, today is uh, the final installment in this season, the final attempt, perhaps, to bring maybe together this theme of loving the world through these archetypes of Miles Davis and John Coltrane, through the claims of art precedes metaphysics and love is the only transcendental, through speech and sound and word and world, all seeking to better love the world, Dilexit Mundum. favorite genre of fiction is autobiography without question um i realize that that uh preference is idiosyncratic to say the least uh many would say that autobiography is obviously not an eligible choice for one's favorite genre of fiction. But I insist that this is my favorite genre of fiction for at least a few reasons. Those reasons are not about the sense that an autobiography is fake. It's not necessarily a a cynical attempt to say that whenever people write their own stories or their confessions or their memoirs or their, you know self-disclosures that they all suffer from self-deception or anything like that uh, I think I, I think being cautious because of the real presence of self-deception and the, and the difficulty of a kind of honesty and sincerity with oneself that autobiography requires is is a uh, I think those are things to, to, to consider, but they're not the reason that I say that autobiography is my favorite genre of fiction. I think of autobiography as a kind of Bildungsromans, so a kind of story of development, a coming-of-age story. It is... Um, a story that is ultimately centered around the character of, of, of this self, of this person speaking in first person with that kind of first person kind of authority that comes from, from that. And to me, what that story is about, what that Bildungsromans is about, what that novel of development, of coming of age, is really about is in some sense the fiction the make-believe the art of life and living and trying to create a life and and those things and it's for that reason primarily 
that I consider autobiography to be my favorite genre of fiction uh, within literature. This genre stretches uh, back a long ways. I think we're living in the midst of a fairly, uh, we're, we're pretty much, I think, uh, up to our ears and, and, and memoir and, and autobiography. Uh, every president gives us one and, and, you know, every rock star has one. And, and, uh, and, and of course, there are the literary ones that are being kind of churned out uh, with various kinds of reception. But I don't really think of the genre of autobiography as simply the modern kind of hyper self-aware self-critical sincere self-loathing um exercise i don't i don't think this is unique to this age i probably would 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 date the autobiography the bildungsromans uh, literary tradition to Augustine's Confessions. And um, I would apply the same exact standard to those confessions in the sense that among the reasons that autobiography is my favorite genre of fiction is not just a general genre discussion, but it's that my favorite book is and I think will always be Augustine's Confessions. That book is for me a just a, a source that will. I don't expect it to exhaust itself with it in my lifetime, and it is surely the you know centerpiece of this claim of this of this statement of preference that I that I have and I think the more I've read the confessions and the more I've studied it and the more I've taught it and read it with others the more this fictional sensibility uh, helps me read the text uh, in in a way that uh, continues to thicken its significance and also to um, find areas that I hadn't explored or discovered before to truly take it up in a novelistic uh, rigorous way as 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 a, as a as a kind of literature that that doesn't just run out when the facts <laughs> end so to speak as a species of scripture I suppose in, in, in a sense and of course it's it's washed over in, in scriptural quotation, allusion, and more. But I'd also like to mention three books that had a profound impact upon my development um, that probably can't stand up to Augustine's Confessions, but that maybe also give more of the sensibility behind this idea that my favorite genre of fiction is autobiography. The first of these books is a book that was published the year I was born. Uh, the author's name is Benami Sharfstein, and the book title is The Philosophers, 
that's the title and the subtitle is their lives and the nature of their thought i read this whenever i was a very uh early uh doctoral student at ohio state and the book is it's it's a fairly lengthy book um and it's divided into really just two almost it's like two books in one the first part of the book is a philosophical argument against the predominant view that a philosopher's life shouldn't matter when trying to understand their ideas and charstein well, argues uh, he opposes that view and he makes the counter argument that in fact the philosopher's life matters a great deal to understanding uh, their ideas in particular their development and their childhood uh, that those early stages of their life um, almost you could say determine or at the very least contribute enormously to what they come to think as adults and um, it's an intuitive argument it's one that um, I kind of buy <laughs> I think there's some limits to the way it's made in particular he tries to uh, push aside some of the uh, critiques of things like psychologism or the inappropriate extension of uh, things like logic into the study of psychology or the export of psychology into other uh, domains like logic ones basically pulling things that are psychological into areas that that are not that and taking areas that are not psychological and using them as sort of um, narratives or even signifiers that uh, that explain psychology it, it's it's one of the foundational critiques really of the tradition called phenomenology that this podcast uh, uses as its namesake but it's a it's a dense introductory first part but i think it's worthwhile and i think it's i think it's important and i think it um i think it makes a really i think it, ma it made an incredible impression then and, it, and it, i continue to really ascribe to 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 the overall argument despite probably having well i haven't read it in a long time so i don't recall the my the the smaller moving pieces in it i may not agree with them all at this point but the second half of the book was probably the most compelling one to me not so much for its philosophical argument but because it presents these biographical vignettes of 20 philosophers and even and after it does that it kind of synthesizes a comparative look at them it even has this like graph or chart where it talks about like you know all the philosophers who had artistic interests and all the philosophers who had mathematical interests and all the philosophers who had religious interests and all the philosophers who were atheists and all the philosophers who live with their parents and and then it kind of like then you get to see the ones who have like all of those things or have only certain ones and not others and it was just super interesting uh when i read it at that time and it had an enormous effect on me taking this genre more generally speaking of biography uh really seriously 
and uh, and so I, I was grateful to to read that book at the time I did. And the second book is a book by Ray Monk uh, called The Duty of Genius, um, and it's a biography as well. Uh, um, but it's it's a bi- biography without the philosophical dense kind of introduction um, of the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein and um, I'm lucky to have been able to become friends with Ray Monk on Twitter and Facebook and I just think that just makes me so happy because this is you know this book I think actually stands up as well as any other one could to something like the confessions i still would probably place it in a different uh tier but it's it this this book to me is is a book that i've returned to and and i i should probably return to again um the book is very rigorous in terms of its archival primary document reliance uh, its reliance on those things as the narrators of the story. Um, Monk really allows those verbatim quotations to narrate a lot of the story, and he kind of inserts himself selectively. Um, there's something descriptive about what he's doing there that even strikes me as being what I might call Wittgensteinian, at least in terms of its method. I don't have time or probably the ability here, nor perhaps elsewhere, to cash that out entirely, but I'm throwing it out there. Um, The message of the book, which to me was not its main goal i think the goal was in some sense that descriptive project but the message of the book is is the the the, the title the the duty of genius which is which is i mean a duty an obligation to oneself perhaps to others perhaps to god to to excellence of a certain kind and to a certain degree uh that was intolerant of any lower standard or criterion. And I think that probably, well, definitely today and now, and probably then when I read it, there's a lot to be done to contextualize and understand that very, very intense and extremely demanding and and frankly, you know, over determined duty uh, of, of genius and even what does the word genius in this case mean how should we take it how should we understand it but at the time whenever I read the book it really gave me a north star on my compass it I learned so many things I, I learned a lot about that whole method thing I talked about but it definitely left me with that almost moral impression that um, not only one's ideas or the, the application of one's life in particular vocational or, you know, uh, professional or, you know, the choices one makes, but that in general, one's life itself needed to 
seek after this very kind of high degree of a kind of genius of a kind of excellence um and i don't want to say that like yeah that 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 north star enabled me to do anything but i think at the time in particular because of other things going on in my life i i wasn't so sure that that star was there or that the stars that i had used to chart my way were were going to be there or were even there at the time and so it was a an amazingly therapeutic text for me at that time nonetheless though it, it was a biography just like sharfstein's book was a bunch of biography vignettes with this philosophical argument neither of them have the quality of augustine's confessions which is has that outdoors it has his own hand there writing and narrating and self-disclosing and and, and and all those things it's still not an autobiography the autobiography that really stood out to me after i read the duty of genius was miles davis's autobiography as uh as narrated to and as written by uh, Quincy Troop. And of course, the addition of Quincy Troop into this supposed autobiography raises all kinds of questions and controversies, kind of like Malcolm X's autobiography uh, by Alex Haley. Um, and those are definitely things worth exploring. Um, but I was kind of glad that Miles didn't write his autobiography in his pure way, perhaps, as maybe, Augustine, well, as certainly as Augustine did. Because the way Quincy Troop um, narrated and curated those interviews and co created his prose, and even as a journalist, uh, filled in some gaps around some of Miles' statements. Uh, but also the way he preserved Miles' voice, his uh, his profanity, his his yeah, his outbursts, all those things. Um, it was really, I mean, it's really a, a, an amazing work, and it for me complemented the kind of message from the duty of genius that I took which was the virtuoso, the genius, Miles, um, is committed to change. And that a fear of change, an inability to change, um, any kind of hostility against change with, within the realm of, of art was, um, was antithetical to... to to, to, the, to the genius of, of, of jazz and of, and, of, and of art and of music for Miles. And so this kind of juxtaposed, you know, one of Wittgenstein's, to me, still very uh, powerful statements that philosophy leaves everything as it is. So for, so for Wittgenstein, philosophy was not a place to change anything. It simply described things as they are. Uh, 
the degree that they are and, and it just simply discloses whatever happens to be the case and for Wittgenstein, his project was in some sense to show you that like there's nothing particularly special about that. That's not it. That's not something to get too excited about. We we should be liberated in some sense from the tedium of this, you know, completely self-replicating project and 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 the place where in some sense true genius lies is not there it's in it's in life it's in living it's definitely in art and i think in some sense for Wittgenstein as well in, in religion or religious experience and so with miles i was able to kind of in some ways leave Sharfstein and 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 monk as who's not just a biography he's also a fine philosopher and and his expositions on on Wittgenstein, on philosophy of mathematics, uh, on other figures like Bertrand Russell, and I mean, are they're just phenomenal? But I left the philosophers behind, and I followed the artist only, Miles, you know, in the capable hands of Quincy Troop, and there I found this uh, total um, obsession with change, and. A degree of complexity socially artistically personally interpersonally I don't want to say that Wittgenstein was by any means a, a, an uncomplicated character that's not true but there was something about Miles that that added a, a bunch of other things to the mix and uh, and of course, the whole time I'm saying this, I'm projecting, right? I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an autobiographical account of my autobiographical claim that autobiography is my favorite genre of fiction through the experience of reading biographies and autobiographies, having already kind of set the, the standard and, and kind of uh, Placed the icon of, of Augustine above all of this, and I'm sorting through it. So, you know, I realized that to some extent I'm I'm not talking about Miles, I'm not talking about Wittgenstein, I'm not talking about Monk, I'm not talking about Sharstein, I'm not talking about I'm talking about myself, I guess. Um, be that as it may, Miles is autobiography it gave me a lot of lessons that were more than just north stars but some really concrete things one of the most concrete things was his wisdom and being very i mean he's aggressive he's he's hyperbolic he uses the word motherfucker like a lot and his you know writing uh, in his speech, in his speaking, um, he can be, yeah, polarizing. In other words, I'm trying to say like Miles wasn't someone who was like had a diff had a difficult time speaking his mind bluntly, and at the same time, he had the wisdom to very rarely criticize other musicians and other forms of art in other words 
one thing I I saw very quickly and saw consistency across his life in these interviews was that Miles was not at all interested in talking about music as a critic and his basic default for for talking about other people's music was to reserve his judgment or to compliment it or to um, mention the things that he liked and, and what have you and um, that for me was a huge wake up call because I was at the time playing and the way I was coming into playing was a lot of you know comparing myself to others and jealousy and and you know what I mean shamefully hearing another band at a double bill or a triple bill show and being like oh I can play better than that or we're better than them and you know showing that you're that you know your stuff within one genre by putting down another one or by kind of dismissively saying that someone who's actually good is is overrated and you know that kind of game and and you know what it was an amateurish and immature um game to be playing and miles woke me right up uh to that and uh and kind of i felt like he was telling me to just you know cut that out and and i've tried to and i uh, I think it's really important. That was one lesson. Another lesson I took away was um, these kinds of complexities that emerge from expectations and assumptions and even stereotypes. But the way in which Miles never, I felt, um, at least in the areas I'm going to talk about, it's not to say he was perfect, but he never fell into completely, I thought, um, into being a total reactionary about things. So, for instance, like Miles did not grow up uh, poor. Uh, his dad was a dentist. He owned a, a farm with cattle and stuff. And so when Miles went to New York to study at Juilliard and to, to find Diz, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, Bird, you know, he didn't show up... Uh, in, in a kind of uh, precarious financial position or anything like that. Uh, in fact, he never uh, he never had a day in his life that he was in any particular financial precarity, as far as I as far as I recall, at least. Other forms of precarity, for sure, especially related to drugs, but but not that, and and certainly racism as well. But he, you know, he approached Juilliard as a school, for instance, with both an open mind and a willingness to learn and um, a commitment to studying classical music, uh, studying music history, um, to really being able to engage with music in the you know, Western tradition on its own terms. And at night he would go, you know, to the club where, where Bird and Diz were playing and 
get in on that scene as, as Bebop is 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 starting to you know to take flight, or is really taking flight um, out of the big band era into the Bop era, and um, it reminds me of a philosopher actually, Jean Luc Marion. He's a contemporary phenomenologist and he studied under Jacques Derrida in in France in Paris and he talked about how um, he and a few other classmates who were all Roman Catholics they were interested not only in studying what they were studying with Derrida which is you know deconstruction and postmodernism and phenomenology and and you know um, the uh, the building blocks of continental philosophy but they were also interested in religion and in the theology in particular and how they would go and take classes at night or maybe have a discussion group at night i don't remember the exact details um at uh i think in like sacred heart or something like that in paris and so in a similar way miles was taking the kind of mainstream juilliard studies by day yet by night immersing himself in jazz and after a period of time of course he left Juilliard because he needed to make himself 100% um, invested and available to to his work as a jazz musician and his playing and and, uh, and, and Diz's band and, and then later on I think as uh, Charlie Parker's uh, band leader and to me, I had, again, often defensively, often I think because of my own lack of, of ability in, in, for instance, classical music or my inability to read music or these kinds of things, I closed myself off from, you know, other genres and, and, and kind of, you know, I had come to understand music in an overly organic way, in an overly romantic way that excluded theory and, and notation and all this stuff. And when I read Miles, I was just like, wow, that was that was dumb of me. I, I, my understanding of folk music, for instance, needs to be able to have the breadth and the depth of, of Miles's appreciation, which, you know, is... Um, it's in a way limitless and yet it knows where its home is it, it understands the differences it's critical for instance he was very critical of the way that um the blues were taught at juilliard and and, and so on and so forth so that 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 um that was another area that that convicted me and oh and taught me that i needed to to be more open in my thinking not only by the way about about music and, and jazz and folks folk music and and black american music but but also about philosophy um and uh the academy and, and and those kinds of things i think all these lessons could be learned and applied as much there as they have been uh, as, as i tried to use them in music but i regret to say that i think i've come to those lessons a lot more slowly uh, than I than I did then with music. Another thing that stood out to me was in terms of Miles Davis's sense of himself a, as a black man was the fact that on the one hand he was not naive or 
at all, you know, foolish about the reality of racism. As far as he was concerned, his upbringing in Missouri was, you know, with people, you know, he was just surrounded by racists. And his experience in New York, quickly, I think he woke up to the fact that racism endured in, in New York as well. And he had some, some experiences in Europe, for instance, that uh, made him think a bit differently about race and his own identity. But another thing that Miles also did is, is, is he, off, he hired uh, white musicians in what was at that time, and to some extent continues to be, but, but especially at that time, was definitely seen and considered, you know, black music. And so like Gil Evans, pianist, his, their work together. Um, Miles was, on the one hand, very aware of himself as a, a black man in a racist society. And on the other hand, he didn't use that awareness as a reason to provincialize himself and his his art on the basis of race and i that really stood out to me in the book again because i think at the time especially i was i was playing almost all my music within a very kind of afrocentric and, and black uh artistic community and there was sometimes a sensibility, I think, of this kind of... I mean, it's it's super kind of ironic given the fact that obviously I, I'm not black, so... But I was, I was, I think, developing a certain kind of provincialism around that uh, myself. And, and Miles helped me get out of it without falling into some kind of, like, you know, colorblind, you know, um, default position. So that really stood out. Miles's delusions stood out too. His delusions surrounding drugs and, and drug use, his delusions and his treatment of, of women, his misogyny, his abuse, um, his materialism. And in the end, I would say his um his pursuit of change as an unqualified good. It took a long time for this part to come down, but I came to understand that as, as a weakness in Miles's work, especially in, um, in just the art that he produced, you know, later in his life. There's a, there's a nobility to there's a lot of honor I see in him pursuing that and in that dogged, incessant, you know, desire to do, to be new. But I also know that there were, there were aspects to Miles's, for instance, um, in some cases, I think his, his use of improvisation, of improvisation and his total reliance on it and his preference of it over other things was 
truly allowed for for remarkable things to happen his way of curating a band and and really trusting in what people brought more than asking or directing them strictly those kinds of things um even for this show the way miles recorded uh a um a soundtrack for a movie a film i don't remember the title of it but he famously played as he watched the film and he just and so like for this show i'm playing these accompaniment tracks as i listen to the the dialogue in real time and that's definitely a miles uh technique but i also felt like there were occasions where i i think the almost idolatry of improvisation change a kind of kind of absolutely negative freedom I've learned over time that that's that is not uh, in my estimation um, that might it, it started to resemble the limits of that sense of genius that I that I took away from Ray Monk's book and the duty of genius now this took years to happen I think early on it was just like miles the Bible of miles <laughs> especially with respect to this whole like always change and don't be afraid to change and embrace change and seek change and i don't see it as anarchic or as dangerous in the sense of like not conserving anything it's just like the way the world is preserved and conserved and remade and reborn is through change and so you know i I don't this is by no means to me a a simplistic easy progressivism of some kind no 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 i think there's a lot more in this uh ideal for miles and for many years and for really all the early years of my career as an academic i carried those lessons i I learned from miles through his autobiography with me and this of course just adds more and more and more reasons to why i for me you know autobiography is my favorite genre of fiction but as i already disclosed that really started to wear a bit thin and it even started to feel I started to have doubts about it I guess that's just the easiest way to put it I just started to have my doubts about that some of those doubts were questioning Miles and you know Tutu you know, Mike Stern, Marcus Miller, Bitches Brew, like just, you know, because for me, Kind of Blue, Sketches of Spain, you know, Someday My Prince Will Come, like those, those for me are miles. Definitely Kind of Blue, you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> um... But, you know, it wasn't just having doubts about Miles and his music, but it was also having my doubts about myself and maybe I couldn't keep up with Miles. It also felt like Miles was on a, on 
like all of his limits and all of his delusions and some of his obsessions with like the visual arts and as a painter and but his egoism his materialism his 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 inability to see himself as an addict and as a misogynist even as he's talking openly about the stories i guess i just started to see some aspects of of that life that i had kind of idolized and say like i, I don't think this is a I don't want to be this isn't a good dad this isn't a good husband this isn't a good person maybe and for a while I think I believed well who cares you know the the the, the duty of genius the, the demand to to be an artist of, from one's own life all the way through that is the greatest you know demand and yeah I had my doubts about that have my doubts about that that was a kind of amoralism a kind of ethical ambivalence or just a cavalier attitude altogether to those things to politics for instance social questions that never quite sustain me like they seem like they would and so there's a new character who really taught me and helped me and in many ways guided me out of those really important lessons and out of that incredibly formidable and formative exposure to Miles vis-a-vis Wittgenstein and Monk vis-a-vis and it's funny Monk because we could also think of Thelonious Monk but in this case it's Ray Monk not Thelonious Monk um, vis-a-vis Scharfstein and the 20 philosophers given there which included among them Wittgenstein uh, as well and all of this still under the banner in the in the sunshine of uh, of Augustine For me, John Coltrane, he truly presented a vision of jazz, and I would say a vision of the good life, a social vision, a political vision, an ethical vision, that in numerous ways was identical to what I would call the, um, well, primarily the virtues of, of that Miles ideal. But there were some differences as well, and those differences really made a difference and shifted my, um, my heart and, and my understanding and, and, I, and it's that contrast, really, that I want to make here on this last episode of Folk Phenomenology. Working out of that opening, provocative, perhaps absurd claim that autobiography is my favorite genre of fiction, and now setting that a bit to one side and moving more deeply into this contrast that train gives when 
juxtaposed, set beside, alongside Miles. Now, first, you have to realize that, of course, there are historical overlaps here. These are two contemporaries. Coltrane's great break comes in the form of playing in Miles's band, his quintet. Coltrane is on Kind of Blue, so, you know, to the extent that that is probably, for me, in music, what the Confessions is for me in literature, with one possible rival, which I'll talk about. Train is there. He's in that studio. He's playing. And, um, you know, Train has struggles and, and you know, addiction, uh, divorce, uh, those, those things. The question of addiction and especially heroin addiction always kind of always kind of wakes me up a bit. Uh, my 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 dad before I was uh, before I was born before he was married, he was a, a heroin addict and, and, and drug dealer for for about ten years, and so those years would have been within the you know, within the later period uh, of this history here. And when I think even of people like Ray Charles and stuff, and, you know, it, it always kind of uh, shakes me up a bit. And so Train had those struggles. But he had other struggles that weren't just struggle, like moralistic or struggles of virtue or, or you know, those kinds of things. He wasn't very good <laughs> in other words like I don't think there was ever a time where Miles Davis wasn't probably the best trumpet player wherever he was at until maybe the very end of his life you know when he was weak and coming on his comeback kind of a thing but you know Miles was the, the prodigy who was band leading and you know he kind of yeah, he was he was always great and he didn't settle for being great. He he went further than that. He became himself. He he developed his own sound. He put that mute on his trumpet. He he was cool. It's the birth of cool, you know, and and, and Miles. But in a way, because of that instantaneous degree of virtuosity which of course was was earned through work and through practice and through incredible dedication i don't want to give the impression that this is some sort of a a freebie from for miles but he was always able to bring that to his talent whereas coltrane you know there's some recordings of him playing in i think the navy and you know he's he's trying to sound like Bird. He's trying to sound like Charlie Parker, and he's doing the kind of you know double stop kind of things. The you know like like two really quick notes each after another. Um, those bop lines and stuff, and it's pretty derivative and it's pretty just okay. Um, it doesn't stand out really. And so, and 
there was even a sense that whenever Train was playing with Miles, um, he was still trying to find his sound. He was he was searching really for himself and who he was as I think a saxophonist and also as a person. He was obviously struggling through his addiction issues and those things, and you know he he comes out of that struggle which was not just or only the kind of material struggle he also by the way struggled materially in terms of financially and in ways that I don't think Miles ever did um, and he struggled to make a living and to provide and uh, and so whenever Train reaches that kind of new stage of his life he marries Alice Coltrane and have some kids and and where he starts to, to be he's a band leader and you know where we see kind of the two I think like signature works of A Love Supreme and uh, and his particular rendition of Favorite Things um this moment of artistic um, coming of age, this this moment of artistic maturity, there's something about that, to me at least, that is so consoling because he wasn't great uh, when he was younger and he kind of scratched and clawed his way all the way to that point through work and through certainly luck and things like that and you know redemption and many kinds <coughs> excuse me um, but it gives the achievement of a love supreme to me at least uh, uh, it gives it a kind of depth and a kind of almost uh, like a certain heroism of sorts that I don't quite get with with Miles, perhaps, and this is probably a petty uh, a petty juxtaposition, but I think it's an important one because I would say we might just celebrate that accomplishment that art as an artistic accomplishment, and then see where he goes from there into his, you know breaking out into that signature aggressive saxophone squeal and scream sound is picking up the, the soprano sax for instance on favorite things and like that that kind of thing which in many ways resembles miles because he was changing he wasn't staying still he was roundly criticized by the jazz community downbeat magazine and all these things for you know, for going too far and for sounding angry. But that wasn't all there was to it. That wasn't the only stuff going on. There were at least two other things. And the two other things for Train that are absolutely central to his project was a, a, a deep religious sense, a deep sense of spirituality within his music. 
a desire, a spiritual religious desire for goodness, for righteousness, which gave way to a politics, which the desire for justice. And so, you know, and so there's the works that I would say are just overtly political, like Alabama in response to the uh, the 16th Street Baptist church bombing in 63 by the Klan in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, took the life of four uh, African-American girls. There was those works, but there was also the fact that, you know, I... Uh, I've come to find out through one of the uh, an interview I listened to that Train was uh, uh, seated and present at one of Malcolm X's last uh, last speeches that he gave in his uh, you know uh, tragically short life. And so this this spiritual and political element, I think, were more important to Train than that artistic achievement or that artistic coming into oneself in some sense the desire for genius or for change for its own sake ultimately ends i i believe uh in a kind of egoism and I think there's there's deeper and thicker and thinner and shallower egos here. I don't want to just dismiss that. And I think that, like, you know, soul and, and the ego, the self, you know, there, you can have a kind of self-centeredness that still has a soulfulness that can in some cases you know make up for other defects but all i'm saying is i'm not trying here to uh to create a kind of nasty dualistic impression of train and and, and miles or or any of the other people i've talked about but for train there was clearly more to his artistic project and to his own Art, not only as a jazz musician, but also just as a person and as a black man, but, you know, so many other things. And that is communicated, I think, in uh, a few ways. One of them is that, you know, A Love Supreme, by contrast to Kind of Blue and, and certainly Bitches Brew and like some of, you know, Dave Miles's, you know, great works. It was meticulously planned and meticulously prepared and meticulously kind of charted out and and laid out in advance by Train himself. And it was it, it was an approach I would say that had an almost liturgical sensibility. And certainly its presentation is is presented that way. Um it was a, a a ritual presentation of jazz of sort, and that ritual included the, the sort of mantra of a love supreme, a love supreme, a love supreme. And to me, that um, 
method of composition, of preparation, and of presentation within a kind of liturgical form is, is maybe the first thing. There's a churchiness to train that I think endures across his work. Um, it's not cool. It's, it's, it's worship. It has that uncoolness, in fact, of, of praise and thanksgiving and, you know, the shame of glorifying God. Obviously, I mean that, you know, to say, you know, the, the unashamed, but nonetheless sort of scandalous, um, form of, 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 of ritual prayer and, and, and devotion and expression within that genre. And I think the same thing uh, carries over into the politics and in particular the politics of protests and the politics of that civil rights era that train was, was, was living in and a part of. And, um, and what unites the spirituality and the religious sense of train and the politics and the desire for justice, which I claim are the two elements that sort of even expand the already um, enormous contribution of his artistic, you know, kind of zenith points, so to speak, is just that idea of a love supreme a love supreme a love supreme dun dun bum bum dun 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 I think that Coltrane he even broke the rule of jazz and that he he used language, human language, the English language to kind of make it really explicit and really clear, you know, what this music was about, what this song was saying. He didn't leave it all to the listener to interpret like, you know, Dylan would say at times or Miles, I'm sure, said many times and stuff like that. It wasn't just this kind of abstract form. He he, he gave it something um, that was not lyrical. And like, I'm thinking of like his album with like Johnny Hartman, uh, the ballad singer. And, you know, so it wasn't just like, you know, the... the the relationship between a melody, for instance, and a set of a set of lyrics, you know. But in this case, he he did something I think that went beyond all of that, and he just repeated this this truth, this this universal truth, a love supreme, which came. I mean, it it was not the love supreme. It's a love supreme, a love supreme. And to me, what, what Coltrane did by proclaiming that mantra in his music 
was he laid out a profoundly philosophical but also profoundly transcendental truth that we can find in, in a number of places, I think, and in more places than just this one, but I'm thinking in particular of, you know, one John. This idea that God is love, that the div that divine love is the one that 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 creates unity, that binds, that holds, sustains, and what follows from that is a love supreme or love as the only transcendental. We like to think of the transcendentals as beauty, truth, and goodness. And look, there's nothing second rate about goodness or beauty or truth. And I think at their maximal transcendent durations and extensions and degrees, each of them and all of them together and, and you know, have that kind of artistic virtuosity. But there is a sense in which they fail to supply a love supreme. They fail, we might say, to to unify and if if transcendentals kind of don't have some unity you know some uniting factor thing behind them then that that makes a person wonder perhaps if, well maybe there's some other transcendentals here and there or what have you maybe there are maybe justice you know and equality uh, universals you know reality but Coltrane's universal Coltrane's message Coltrane's art and his spirituality and his politics Coltrane's life left us with I believe this yearning this desire but also this commitment ethical, moral, religious, spiritual, political, artistic for sure, to a love supreme. And that lesson of love is the only transcendental for me is the, the missing link or the thing that is insufficient in the absolute primacy of art that I found in, in, in Miles and, and even before that in Wittgenstein told through Monk just as Miles was told through Troop and so on and so you know as this season comes to a close and as I attempt in some small way to capture this title, these two words, folk phenomenology, 
which repeat a title I used for my book in 2015, which could take us all the way back to that, you know, preface episode with my daughter Sophia asking me questions. My entire career to this point, so, you know, about a dozen years or so, I guess, you know, give or take, has really insisted in the first place, sequentially in the first place, on the claim that art precedes metaphysics. That is the the central primary claim and conviction of folk phenomenology in the 2015 book. I think it's something that one can find in the work that preceded it and the work that's come after it. It is a it is an idea of a kind of radical primary root of art that is capable of doing the work that we often, I think, turn to other so-called first things to do, in particular in philosophy and metaphysics. So in my view, first philosophy is not aesthetics, not a theory of art, but is art itself. The hand, the heart, and the head. But it starts with the hand. And that, that gets me into some, I think, thorny um, territory and the distinctions we might raise between um, poesis or making and praxis, like living or doing at and and, uh, and theoria or thinking contemplation and these are categories that come out of Aristotle that I have to admit uh, puzzle me sometimes and other times they're helpful and and I think that that idea of art precedes metaphysics is going to need to be run through some of those kinds of categorical distinctions uh, a lot more in the future to to continue to develop and grow and and uh, I don't have a lot of doubt though I, I don't like I'm okay if it turns out to be different or if that claim doesn't stand up to scrutiny in one way or another but I'm not I'm not sort of troubleshooting it in a kind of I mean I genuinely for the most part only troubleshoot because I'm pretty sure that things will fall apart but that's something I don't feel is going to fall apart and that's been a primary claim and I think that that claim has as much to do with theory and philosophy and speculative and conceptual um, thought as it has to do with my own autobiography and the fact that long before I studied metaphysics I was an artist and a guitar player and, and that that is, for me, my, my, my primary um, mode of, of, of expression and, and, and all those things. But also the sense that art precedes metaphysics um, gets more deeply and more, I would say, universally into that vocation to to be and to be more that transcendental vocation to 
to the fiction of becoming and, and the make-believe of, of living and, and, and all of that. But I don't believe that that claim, Art Precedes Metaphysics, that Miles-inspired uh, ideal is uh, anymore. I don't see it as a... Um, as a claim that's going to be able to uh, lead and direct and sustain me um, anymore, not alone. This has nothing to do, though, with a rejection. Like, I'm not rejecting Miles. I'm not rejecting that claim. I'm not rejecting the duty of genius. Um, but I am noting that it's that it's for me it's a necessary but not yet sufficient condition and so to that I bring a love supreme to that I bring love as the only transcendental which I think at this moment at this time completes the completes the project at the very least at the planning stage at the kind of you know those two claims art precedes metaphysics and love is the only transcendental the duty of genius and a love supreme you know I I think that's it I think I think that I think those two together to some degree also though apart I believe that they capture, for me, uh, what folk phenomenology is about and is for. And not only its content, but also at some level, its commitment to form and its insistence on a kind of primary artistic presentation that is not for its own sake ultimately but is ultimately for the sake of the other for the sake of of, of love and in reverse order a realization that art for all of its primary and primordial even uh, existence and presence and power that without that only transcendental as the guiding force of whatever that artistic object or the subject themselves offers that it's uh, it's not enough the duty of genius demands for more than just the duty of genius the commitment and imperative to always change has to be committed ultimately to more than just incessant total and constant renewal 
there needs to be that spiritual and I, I would claim also political uh, dimension that love um, not only fills as if like it's filling like little gaps but that it overfills and that it floods and that we realize in fact that really it's it's supreme <laughs> it's more important actually than the uh, than the artistic um, imperative it is perhaps the closest thing we can come to to say in a in a meaningful secular way to to say the name of God to speak the the name of the of the divine and that to me is brings me right up to to the very face of Christ and to and to and to, and, and to my relationship to that face and also to my identity as a Christian as, as a Catholic as a person uh, all those things it, it, it throws me into that fiction of autobiography that is not only my favorite genre of literature but that I feel is kind of like more than just a preference it's it's a it's a kind of condemnation it's a kind of we are we are determined we are conditioned by this fiction and um, in that sense and it, it puts us right back where we started with Augustine and his confessions and the fact that this isn't just about me telling you about my favorite books and about my favorite artists and and all the things I'm not telling you and all the things I'm withholding perhaps and all the things I'm missing and all the things I'm getting wrong and, and all of the omissions and commissions and but that it's ultimately now when you're listening not when I'm speaking and putting my voice into this microphone but when this moves out of the organ of my, of my mouth into your ears that it's your story now. And that, to me, that movement from the call from my mouth into your ears, it, it demands a response. And there we return to that opening move of the interview both the poetics and the metaphor of of sight of the looking within and between but also its sort of sonic sensibility which you're of course also experiencing 
in this particular presentation of media as a sound, this acoustic uh, address, this acoustic call where you can participate not only with a kind of look or a passive eye, but also with a, with a response, uh, with a, uh, a responsorial psalm. And so I hope that, um, that you felt called across these uh, episodes and across this season. I, I know I have. I hope you find a way to respond and in that sense enter into this artistic creation into this medium of art not just as a fellow artist of course that's true as well we're all building and creating our lives imagining our our ourselves together but most of all to respond to these calls and to perhaps this call here now with a, a, an act of love and um, it could be directed at, at yourself could be directed at some part of yourself it could be directed uh, at someone else at your beloved it could be directed at someone you hate it could be directed at, at, at me or at least what you think is me or at someone who you're particularly grateful for I mean who knows where but I don't think that matters so much because if we believe, and I do believe, in this love supreme, then when you hear the call, I think that the ultimate response is, is the response of your heart. And, um, and that, that movement inside kind of jumps at or vibrates in a kind of recognition to that fundamental call that divine call I would say and once you feel that and once you know that it's there I think that that's enough and I think that that is um, a sufficient definitely necessary but also a sufficient condition to to live and to continue seeking and searching and um, journeying within this love supreme that I believe carries with it some amount of, of, of artistic duty. But that's Miles and Train through the um, 
lens of the autobiography as fiction and this is the end uh, of season one of Folk Phenomenology. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1. I would like to again thank my sponsors. Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, the Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine, and a very special thanks to our featured sponsor, Whip and Stock Publishers. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, the Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. I'm just so proud and happy to have been surrounded by all these friends of the show, to have had all the support. And, and also friendship from all the sponsors of the show. And as I said, to have been able to count for so long on Whippenstock Publishers as friends and as supporters of my work. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to all of our wonderful friends and sponsors. And you'll also find a tip jar there. Um, there's a lot of work, I think, to be done still in uh, really disseminating uh, some of the really impactful moments from this season, uh, curating and editing some of that down into uh, more maybe digestible snippets. Uh, I also plan to do a translation of my own of the uh, conversation I had with Rodrigo Guerra in Spanish. Um, there's, a, there's a lot, I think, of, uh, of fruit still to come uh, from the seed that was sown during this season. And of course, there's a lot of editorial work on my end, uh, critical work, autocritical work uh, in terms of the show. I have a, a new soundscape template that I'll be building for the recording of season two where every guest uh, won't be played to live in post after the fact, but will inhabit a, a soundscape with me uh, digitally um, that will speak into and with and hopefully have a more human interaction with that sonic component. Um, that's one of a few, uh, of, uh, that's one of a number of, of small edits and changes I'm hoping to uh, implement for season two. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. And uh, that's me. If you'd like to find out more about me and my work, uh, you can find that on www.samrocha.com. Well, all that's left is for me to try to express one final time my gratitude to all of you who have listened all of you who have uh, been a part of this first season of this idea called Folk Phenomenology. And I just really need to thank the uh, people who came on 
and allowed me to speak with them and interview them, uh, debate and discuss with them. I uh, this show would be would really be nothing without them, and I realize that so much of what I at least find compelling about this show uh, is really what they contributed to it, uh, both in, in their in their direct words, but also just their presence, their lives, their openness and willingness to. Uh, to, to just sit down and break bread and, uh, uh, and 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 think together and be together and, and in that and in that sense uh, to um, to create a world uh, a world of of conviviality uh, of friendship uh, and also a world with uh, room for uh, disagreement for uh, sharp disagreement. Um, but I think rooted in uh, in a kind of delight, in, in a in a in a kind of joy, and a playfulness, and, uh, and something that uh, that isn't just uh, serious in all the ways that human relations are ultimately serious. Personal bonds and encounter is serious, but that added. Uh, delight that added color of I think simple felicity felicidad is the word in, in Spanish that I think uh, happiness I think that's the word uh, a happy uh, a happy show uh, a happy time that's that's marked my experience at least and uh getting to hear from uh the listeners uh week in and week out um has also brought me a great deal of joy and, and made me very happy and ultimately the ability to share this uh as with my other work um really makes me happy and i'm always humbled uh and reminded uh at what a great privilege and honor it is to have uh people who are who are interested in uh taking some joy and my joy and taking some delight and my delight even in the uh the happy faults <laughs> and mistakes and errors and misjudgments i'm sure seek deus dilexi mundum for god so loved the world I might have missed that so emphatic so that emphasis that delight in the world isn't just a neutral quantity but it's a so delighted delighted enough that in the case of John 316 God sent into the world the logos the word Christ in a secular sensibility it's to say that it's not enough to simply love the world to simply feel delight and happiness and joy but it has to be in the right proportion it has to be enough it has to be so delight in the world that we're moved to uh, 
to love the world. Uh, it's a love that begets love, which I think is what all love is. It's always an entry into more love. It's always an entry into a deeper love. It's always an entry into transcendence. And that entry isn't an escape. It's not a cheap exit. It's also always eminent. It's also always worldly. And it's in that intersection of the transcendental and the worldly where I'd like to mark our uh, end of this first season and invite you one last time to go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundu. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. You love you find it. Mm-hmm. You love where you find it. Mm-hmm. You love where you find it. And it is a terrifying thing. Love is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I'm Through the eyes of our ears, We see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.